So we are in the midst of the series called Back to Galilee, and we are, in light of the resurrection, reconsidering everything that Jesus had to teach, because to be disciples, that means we are people that are learning to obey everything that Jesus commanded, and we are teaching others to do the same, um, that the gospel is so much bigger than just simply um, a get out of jail free or hell free card or whatever. There's this whole life we're supposed to live, right? We're supposed to be pursuing life. It starts now. Resurrection life begins in our lives right here, right now. And I know, my goodness, there's some people and I see the glow of resurrection on their faces. And they've, caught, they've captured this Jesus guy and they just are pursuing him. They want to follow him um, into, into life. But before we get to that, I have a really probably strange question for you. Have you ever been murdered? (laughs) Just last week. Yeah. Have you ever been murdered? Have you ever been, have you ever been killed? Obviously, well, although I suppose it could be figuratively speaking as well. Maybe somebody has been murdered and didn't quite fully die or came back from the dead or whatever, but but that's <laughs> But have you ever have you ever just had a part of you die? Part of you be murdered, somebody kill a part of you. Maybe it was a hope. Maybe it was a dream. Maybe it was a hope or a dream that you didn't even have an ability to put into words because you were too young. And somebody spoke something to you that just killed you, shot a bullet right into it. I would say we probably all have had somebody do that to us in our lives somewhere along the way. Somebody kill a little hope or a little dream that we've had. And I can probably say, quite honestly, that every one of us have done that to somebody as well. Sometimes it's by accident. Oh, I didn't know you were so serious about being an astronaut. <laughs> but it, 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 it happens. It happens even more painfully when it's intentional, though, right? It's one thing for those things to just happen accidentally. But words in reality can hurt. Things people say to us, things people do to us, they can kill us. Let me read for you from Matthew Chapter 5, verse 21, starting in verse 21. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid every last penny. So this is the first of the antitheses 
where Jesus quotes something from the Old Testament and you've heard it said, and then he follows it up with, but I say to you. Here he quotes Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Do not murder. Anyone who does will be subject to judgment. At this point, this ragtag bunch of folks that are following Jesus around the countryside hoping to find some hope, hoping to be healed, these people that have come close to Jesus, his closest disciples that want to learn from him, they're probably like way underwhelmed at this point. Yeah, yeah, we've heard that said a million times over, don't murder, and anyone who does will be subject to judgment. Yeah, okay. There's no oohs and ahs at this point. This is just Judaism 101. This is law 101. People would have been told that from the time they were tiny. Don't murder. You'll be subject to judgment. It's entry-level stuff. And if we just were to stop right here, though, it's really not hard for us to see how, as we talked about last week, this command is about love. It's about love. It's not hard to see and connect those dots, right? Don't murder somebody. Well, that's a loving thing to not do, right? It's not very loving to murder people, if you were wondering. Once again, very underwhelming stuff. <laughs> but there's something deeper. Maybe there is something deeper. Maybe there's something, there, maybe there's something really, uh, just really deep. Maybe there's something really, really deep to this command that's, that's couched within the prohibition to not murder. I think so. Because Jesus goes on, maybe to tell us a little bit of what that deeper thing is. A deeper thing that uh, he follows up and says, but I say to you. Jesus follows up the commands of the Old Testament law, quoting it, and then saying, but I say to you. Wow. That's profound in its own right, and we could stay stuck right there for the rest of the evening. Like, this is stuff, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get some of these commands from God, and Jesus is just like, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is being presented to us as somebody like Moses, that's even greater than Moses was. The greatest of all Old Testament prophets, Moses was. And Jesus shows up, and that would have been profound for them. It would have been rock their world kind of things for Jesus to follow up. They would have been ho-hum, like, okay, cool, don't murder. Yeah, uh uh-huh, subject to judgment, that's fine. But now you're going to say something more? Maybe even challenging to that? Jesus? I think at this point, this ragtag bunch of folks who would have been perking up, paying a little more attention... Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The translation gets in our way just a little bit here. We see a structure. There's three anyones. Anyone who says who is angry, anyone who says raka, anyone who says you fool. And then in each one of those cases, it's in this translation that I just read, which is the NIV, it's anyone who is angry with his brother is subject to judgment, just like anyone who murders. But then it has anyone who is 
says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Interestingly enough, it's actually the same word all the way through in the original language. It's enkos, and it could just be better translated liable to or subject to. So, in other words, the outcome of every one of those things, murder, anger, calling somebody Raka, or you fool, we'll get to that in a second. Every one of those puts you in a position of being subject to something. Subject to judgment for the first two. Subject to the Sanhedrin, the highest law court in Judaism. And subject to the fire of hell. We'll get to all those in a second. Every one of those things, though, and I just want to belabor this point for a minute. Doing any one of those things lands you in the same situation as murdering somebody, Jesus says. Maybe even worse. Maybe even worse. Not just any judgment, but judgment of the Sanhedrin that's going to decide your fate or subject to the fire of hell. It seems as though in many ways the offense goes down and the punishment maybe goes up. Although I don't know that to look at it as punishment is the right thing. I think that's how many people hear it. But the idea is that you're putting yourself in that situation. The verb there is middle. You've done it to yourself. You are a participant in doing it. So the being subject to the Sanhedrin or being subject to the fires of hell or just being subject to judgment is something that we've done to ourselves. It's not just simple punishment. We put ourselves in that position. We've made ourselves, we place ourselves under each one of those things. It's a consequence, absolutely. Okay, so let's move on. If you are angry with your brother, of course, that's really great news, right? Because I can be angry with my sisters all day long, and I just have a sister, so good. <laughs> I'm joking. Adelphoi, it's neutral, it's, should, it's gender specific, but it should be translated brothers and sisters. Anyone who is angry with his brother or sister, right, will be subject or inkos to judgment. Anyone who is angry, anger, or gizo, smoldering, festering, fixed anger or rage. It's that, oh my goodness, I'm so mad, I just can't get over it. I can't, oh, I can hardly sleep at night because I'm so angry. Sorry, <laughs> you guys are like, wow, this guy needs some, a little less caffeine or something. Whew. Anyway, that's the idea, though. It's not just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just like a fleeting being upset about something, right? Now, that sometimes can turn into that other thing, right? But the, the word itself is trying to get at this idea of somebody has just been angry, somebody's done something to them, or something has happened, and they're just stewing on it. They're letting it fester. They're letting it grow. You guys never have had that. You've never done that before, have you? Oh, that guy. I'm getting upset just to think you guys haven't done that. <laughs> it's this anger that leads to rage. Jesus warns us with this 
anger. He wants us to understand that murder starts with anger. We're going to return to that idea in a second. Jesus also warns us concerning how we speak. Our words. Like, that's kind of a a quick move, right? From murder to being really angry to speaking. He warns us concerning our speaking when he says, anyone who says, anyone who says, and then he, he gives us two examples of things that people say. But before we get there, speech is potent. It's powerful. Proverbs 18, 21 from the message translation says this, words kill, words kill, but words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. Words kill. Words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. Words can kill a person's soul. I know people who are like walking dead because they have been so beat up, so ridiculed, so put down. But there's seemingly hardly anything alive inside of them. They've been killed by words slung like stones right at their hearts. Words that unfortunately have been thrown around by the very people that were supposed to love them, care for them, nurture them. Parents and teachers, pastors, friends. But unlike Stones that can just bruise, literal stones. Stony words that come out of a person's mouth enter into a person's soul. and Especially for the most vulnerable, they become, and not to mix my metaphors here too much, but they become like a corrosive poison that eats away at somebody's inmost being. At our hearts, at our souls, at our minds. Words like raka. We have no clue what that means most times, but it's really great, and I I doubt you'll forget this. Raka is an Aramaic term of contempt based on the sound someone makes clearing in their throat when they're about to spit in somebody's face. Raka! Seriously. Have you ever had anybody spit in your face? Intentionally? Jesus says, even if you do not literally murder someone, but you do, you'll be subject to the Sanhedrin, to the highest Jewish law court. Or if somebody just says, you fool, moros, we get, yep, our term, Moron from that. It's another term of contempt. Only this one carries with it the idea that the person is utterly worthless. Of no value. Of no significance. The person who tells a brother or sister that they are worthless, even if they have not killed someone 
Jesus says, is subject not just to judgment or to the Sanhedrin, but subject to the fire of hell. And I don't want to lighten this too much, but it's really important that we explain what Jesus is talking about here. Because we have all these ideas packed up with this term hell, right? These four little letters that themselves can become bad, hard, hurtful words that are spoken into people's lives sometimes. I've heard people reiterate to me stuff that they were told all their lives, that they're no good, you're not going to any place but hell. Oh, that person's going to hell in a handbasket. You might, right? Even this can become a term of contempt. So it's important that we really understand what Jesus is talking about. The valley of Hinnon, or Gehenna. That's the word translated hell. And it's literally a valley outside of Jerusalem. And it's where people would take all their worthless garbage and just throw it. If you didn't want it, you take it out to the valley of Gehenna. And if you had some way to light a fire, you maybe lit it on fire. You add it to somebody else's burning, smoldering heap of junk. I remember when I was a kid, um, there used to be a landfill here in Centralia. Okay? My dad, we'd load up garbage. We didn't have a dump truck. We had a truck truck, right? We had to unload the stuff. And my, it was cheap then too, right? Nowadays, it's like a, it costs you a billion dollars to take something to the dump. Anyway, not literally. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> John was just there today, right? <laughs> How much was it, John? Anyway. But we would, we would go, and, and I remember at one point, they started putting these, uh, these like pipes in the ground to let off the methane gas, and there would be like little flames that were coming up. I think they still might, might even be out there still. I don't, I don't know, but it was kind of stinky, and there was the flame, and a lot of garbage, a lot of stuff people didn't want. And I remember this one occasion when there's like this, this really big like old television set out in the garbage a little ways, right? And there's all these signs that say, you know, you can't take any of the stuff out of there. But my dad and I are unloading a bunch of stuff, and I'm trying as hard as I can to throw something at that, at that uh, television set that will break it, right? So I'm slinging everything I can possibly throw at it to try and break this dog on television. And I don't know, Dad, was I ever successful? I don't think so. I don't think so. It was like I saw something that seemed like it was worthless and I just wanted to make it more worthless by totally obliterating it. Hmm. If, that, if that story is lost on you, that's okay. Hopefully it'll, hopefully it'll fall into place at some point. So, so how does calling someone else worthless Make them subject to the fire of Gehenna? How does, some, how does calling someone else worthless make that person subject to the fire of Gehenna? But what about the speaker? Condem, condemn someone to worthlessness with your words and you'll find yourself there Judged by your own words. Condemn, condemn someone else to worthlessness. With your words, you fool. And you'll find yourself there, judged by your own words. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 
In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. The measure you use will be used on you. We find ourselves as we sling those kind of stones trying to find somebody or something that seems to already be worthless and make them feel worse about themselves, putting ourselves right in that situation, right in that context. We find ourselves lost and wandering through valleys of garbage that are on fire and there's no life there. Now, for us, our words change, right? We don't run around calling rock up to people, or we guess we kind of say moron sometimes, right? Our words change. For us, it's really not moros and raka. It's the B word, the N word, the R word. But even those words change. I was talking with Mitch, I think a couple of weeks ago. Wasn't, wasn't you, Mitch? Yeah, it was you, Mitch. It was you. It was you. He's like, don't do that. Don't bring my name up. We were talking about making an app that kind of gave you the most up-to-date, current, politically correct words to use in any given situation, right? Because <laughs> it's really hard to keep up, right? It's really hard. You, you're trying to use the right politically correct word, and you find yourself using some word that offends everybody. Our words change. It's really not a matter of words. It's not the words we use, it's the intention behind the words that we use. It's the meaning that we pack into those words that matters. This isn't a matter of words. Jesus isn't just saying, if, as long as you don't call anybody raka or you fool, you're fine. That's not, you, we can find all kinds of words to hurt people. We can find nice words to hurt people. Well, sometimes it's just better to shut up, right? It's not a matter of words. The, deep, the deeper issue that Jesus is seeing in this command not to murder. It's deeper. It's something that's going on way inside of us. As a matter of fact, if we were to handle murder as a killing problem... We would always be too late. By the time we're angry to the point of murder, the command to not murder does not do us much good. Right? That maybe started with just a word of contempt that had very little value for a person that spilled into anger, that spilled into killing. We have to go deeper. Murder, as Jesus puts it, is an anger problem. A rage problem. And this anger problem is actually a contempt for people problem. A low view of others problem. Which itself is a pride and arrogance problem. Which, if we're continuing down this path, is most often a security and identity problem. Which is, deep down, a heart problem. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. The things that come out of a man's mouth 
cometh from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. These are heart problems. Jesus says, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. They're heart problems. So how does your heart view others? How does your heart view others? Has it been conditioned to have a low view of others? you have a heart that has contempt for other people? Do you have a heart that has learned to be racist? Because that's learned behavior. Hate is a culture. It's something that has been conditioned in us. It's a culture that's led by fear. And I really think it comes back to this idea that we're not very secure with who we are. And we have to find somebody else that's a little bit lower than us so that we can feel a little bit better about ourselves. Jesus is really onto something here. A heart that would say to somebody, you're worthless. A heart that says to somebody, a heart that says to somebody, I'm very angry with you. I'm never going to forgive you. Is a heart that murders Somebody. So how does the heart get to that point? How does the heart get to the point of producing evil thoughts of murder and slander and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and the like? How does a heart become so broken and beat up that it has to have a low view of others just to even survive? How does the heart get to the point of being okay with calling people the B word or the N word or the R word. It's a hurt heart. It's a heart that's received that stuff. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. So I don't think that's profound, but how does it heal, right? If, if we learn to hurt people out of the hurt that we've been hurt with, how do we heal? How do we get off that stupid cycle of just hurting people in the same way we've been hurt? How do we get over it? Reconciliation. Forgiveness. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus, in the text that I read for us, continues. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Jesus 
here has in mind the person that he's just described as being the one who says, you fool, you're worthless. The one who has said in some way, shape, or form, haraka. The person who has maybe even literally murdered, but not necessarily. Somebody who has murdered with their anger, murdered with their words. He's speaking of that person. If you've done that to somebody else, if you've had that much hatred for somebody else, if you've gone to the point of wanting to murder somebody with your anger, with your words, if you've gone to the point of having massive contempt for people, Jesus is saying, before you even think about coming and offering a gift at the altar, you go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Why? Why? Why would Jesus say that basically God doesn't want your sacrifice until you've reconciled with people that you have wronged, that you have had contempt for? Well, because... In the same way that there's a very close relationship to the two commands that are greatest, that sum up the law and the prophets that they all hang on, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your second one that is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, so too it comes to reconciliation. If we desire to have reconciliation with God, in as much as is possible for us, we are to seek reconciliation with others. Now, this is really important. I don't want you to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He says, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, right? We can't make other people ask. <laughs> we can't seek to make other people do this to us. Jesus is talking about us when we have wronged somebody and it comes to our mind that we are going to go and apologize. We're going to go and somehow try and reconcile. There's an inseparable connection between reconciliation with God and others. The whole point God wants us to reconcile with him is so that we also reconcile with others. Reconciliation heals us. Have you ever had, oh my goodness, have you ever had a situation in your life where you've wronged somebody and you seek reconciliation and it heals your heart? It heals us. Reconciliation is healing. Reconciliation changes us. To ask for forgiveness, for the kind of hurt that you've been hurt with when you've done that to somebody else, changes everything. Changes everything. The idea of reconciliation, just to throw this out there, literally means to end needless hostility through coming together for meaningful change. That's what God wants for us. He continues on, Jesus does, settle matters quickly. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid every penny. Again, the idea is that this is the person who's on his way to court with the person that he's wronged. Jesus is talking about this person who has been angry, who again has said raka, who has treated other people like worthless fools. To this person, Jesus offers some simple and quite practical advice. This is really practical stuff. Sometimes we over-spiritualize stuff. 
Settle matters quickly with your adversary. With, with your adversary. Sometimes we want to go and like pass notes and try and find somebody else to apologize for us, right? Jesus says, with your adversary. Go to your adversary. Talk to them. You might find out that they're willing to forgive you. Maybe it's just really simple. Sometimes we get other people too involved in our issues and it just muddies the water. I mean, don't get me wrong. We have to sometimes go to others and ask for some wisdom and some guidance. But sometimes it's just simple. Man, my goodness, if I've done something to offend somebody else or I've hurt them or I've wronged them, I just got to go to them and ask them to forgive me. It's simple. We make it too complicated. And do it quickly. Do it quickly. This is another very practical piece of advice. Things get get really ugly when we stew on them. Really ugly when we just go over and over and over in our minds the things that even we've done to hurt others, right? We start coming up with reasons why they deserved it. Oh, well, I might have done that, but I mean, come on, they had it coming. I mean, they've done that to people before. I think they did that to me. Maybe, kind of, sort of. Right? We just need to do it quickly. If we're wrong, we're wrong. If we've hurt somebody, we've hurt somebody. We need to admit it. Settle matters and move on. And we've been on the other side of that, right? Like we've been on the other side when somebody just is unwilling to do that. I mean, they know that they're wrong, and you know that they know that they're wrong, but they just don't want to admit that they're wrong. Right? And then all of a sudden they start blaming you for the problems that they caused. And we don't like that. So why would we ever think somebody would like when we turn the tables? Settle matters quickly. Blow it out of proportion. No mistake is made better by trying to lie about it being a mistake. Just own it. Own it. It's okay. It's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed. Part of what it means to be a sinful, fallen, fallible human being is that we're going to blow it. God forgives us. He desires us to forgive one another. And it's being made in His image and remade in His image that leads us to reconcile. I have two closing thoughts. Going all the way back to the beginning. Jesus checks His disciples and all these folks that are gathered around to listen to Him. He checks their orientation to the law. Because their orientation for keeping the law, their motivation for keeping the law, particularly amongst the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, at least as they're offered a caricature of within the scriptures, was a matter of the status of the individual who was keeping or not keeping the law. What I mean is this. They weren't concerned with justice. They weren't concerned with doing what was right for the sake of what was right for somebody else. They were simply concerned for whether or not they were doing what was right so that they looked good to God. It's like some kind of religiosity. What hoops do I have to jump through in order for God to like me or to think that I'm in? What do I have to do? What's the minimum I have to do to get in? Jesus turns that around. Jesus' orientation is that keeping the laws to be a matter of the other, not a matter of the self. To miss... To keep the law for one's own sake, to do anything that's good and right for one's own sake, is to like miss the point entirely. 
when we reconcile, two people are healed. Not just one. And as we looked at in the proverb I read earlier, words can kill, but words can also resurrect. Words can bring hope. Words can bring life. Think about it this way. When Jesus says, go, if you've figured out you've got something that your brother has against you and reconcile with him or her, what do you do it with? Usually. It starts with words, usually, right? It starts with words. There's maybe more than words, but there's not less than words. When you show up to reconcile with somebody, you go and you speak words to them that speak life to them. There is nothing like having somebody come to you and say, I'm sorry, I blew it. It gives so much life where otherwise there was only death, where there was only pain. It resurrects, transforms. Jesus isn't just trying to be negative and tell us what not to do. He's telling us what to do. He's instructing us and challenging us to speak words of edification, words of reconciliation, words of hope to one another. Sometimes we just get a negative fixation on the bad things that happen around us, on talking about how words can destroy, but words can give life, words can give hope, words can speak truth, words can pull a life from the brink of disaster. So, what kind of words you got? What kind of words you got? What kind of words of reconciliation do you have? Do you have somebody that's come to your mind that you have wronged? That you know you've wronged? That you need to reconcile with? Take a chance. Go for it. Try it. In as much as it is possible for you, as Paul writes in Romans, live at peace with people. And I know it's not always possible. Sometimes I, I talk to people about this all the time. You have a, Pastor Cole, goodness gracious, I've tried so hard, but they're just not willing to own it. Okay, that's okay. You've got to be okay with that, right? But in as much as it is possible for you, go and reconcile with people. Find peace with people. Don't let that corrode your life. Don't let that corrode others' lives. We must live to learn at peace with one another. It's life-giving. It's transforming. Yeah. Amen. What's, what's, what's your name? Can I, Donnie? Yeah. Good to meet you, man. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just pray right now for healing in people's lives where They've experienced receiving words that kill, words of contempt, where people have experienced people saying to them in one way or another that they're worthless, or spitting figuratively or literally in their faces. Heal them, Heavenly Father.
I pray that those that have done such things to others, that they would be convicted and they would want to come and reconcile and apologize. Heal their hearts, Lord Jesus. Restore to them peace. Speak truth to them and let your truth just totally overwhelm any lie that's been spoken to them. I pray right now, Father, mysteriously, by your power, by your spirit around us, that you would heal people's lives. That they would hear that they're fearfully and wonderfully made. That they're made with a purpose. That you know them, that you love them. That, yeah, it seems overwhelming to even think about the fact that you know us. That you're mindful of us. And that it's mysterious to us, Lord God, but I, I trust that that's, that's the case. I trust that regardless of our situations, that you are the God who is present. The God who heals, the God who restores. So, Father, heal and restore people today. And Father, I pray for those that know that they've hurt others and they're maybe afraid to own it. I pray that you would give them faith right now to be courageous, to step out and seek reconciliation. And maybe they'll even find a little healing in their own hearts for those attempts to reconcile with others. Father, I thank you for the reconciliation that has happened in this room here tonight. Because it's happening before we even started talking about it, Lord Jesus. I praise you for that. Praise you, praise you for that, that, uh, that you are the God who does redeem and who does restore and who makes meaningful and purpose out of everything that goes on in our lives when we surrender it to you. Father, I just pray, I pray for... pray for the glory of your name to be known in our community. We trust you, Lord Jesus. We trust you to be doing powerful things in our lives beyond our understanding, comprehending, or knowing. We love you so much. We praise your holy name.